Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Thank you, David. It's good to see y'all. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, it's good to be here, yeah, worshiping Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and our text this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, um, chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, and this is the Word of God. While he, that's Jesus, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, that's the larger group of disciples, not just the 12, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Um, Dear Lord, we... We come to you now in in prayer asking that you would grant us understanding of your holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. And um, we acknowledge we need your help to understand your word. And uh, sometimes these passages can be difficult for us. Um, So we need your help. We ask uh, that that you would aid us now by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. When I was um, around 40 years old, I mean, I was, I don't know, maybe 38, 39, I might have been 40, uh, my dad called me up, and uh, he was crying. And I'm like, oh, brother, you've probably heard me talk about my dad, I'm thinking, what now? And uh, I'm like, dad, are you, are you okay? Is everything okay? And he says, uh, you have a brother. I said, I already know that. I know I have a brother. I have a younger brother and a, a younger sister. He says, no, you have an older brother. Another brother that I don't know about? Yeah, a brother I gave up for adoption, and he just called me, and it's, this is just so great, isn't it? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I'm thinking, well, well what? <laughs> I'm not the oldest? You know, I mean, that's a certain position in the family. What's this going to do to inheritance? I mean, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I have another brother, a brother from another mother, literally. And uh, he's six months older than me. Huh. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. What? Mom and another woman were pregnant at the same time? Wow. You know, this is a lot. This is a lot to, to take in, a lot to process. I think I'm still processing it. I, um, I eventually met my uh, newfound brother, and uh, it was weird on so many levels. Um, he looked a lot like my dad, which was a little unsettling. I was like, whoa, you know, I feel like you're looking in the face of your, your dad. And then he's referring to my dad as dad. That was a little weird. He goes, yeah, you know, I was talking to dad the other day, and you know, this and that. And yeah, dad called me, and uh, dad and I were talking, and and thinking, is he your dad? Can you call him dad? A lot of processing. Um, is he really my brother? 
I mean, yes, biologically, but he was legally adopted by another family. Doesn't he have a dad? Then, of course, I'm thinking, well, shouldn't I be more sensitive toward his situation? I mean, you know, if I was adopted as a child, some of you probably were adopted. You want to know who your biological parents are? I mean, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I was just thinking about all this stuff. What a whirlwind. Just another piece of the puzzle in my father's wacky life. So my long-lost brother and I became friends, or I guess brothers, I don't know. And we talk uh, uh, very seldomly. Um, yeah, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but it's just, it's just a lot. You know, something like that's a lot to sort through. Is he family? Isn't he family? He's not legally family, but he's biologically family. Katrina and I have a blended family. We have six kids between us and soon to be 12 grandchildren. <laughs> so we both have stepkids. Our kids have married people with kids, so we even have some step-grandkids. Some of our kids have kids with people they're not married to. We claim them all as grandkids. We just, you know, we just view them all as our children and grandchildren, whether step or adopted or whatever the case may be. Um, I was talking to an old friend from high school uh, last week, and uh, he asked me, he said, how many, how many grandkids do you have? I said, well, it's, it's about to be 12 And he said, well, how many are yours? (laughs) And he meant biologically, right? They're all mine. Katrina and I don't differentiate, you know, based on whose DNA the kids have. Um, It's a crazy, broken world out there, especially with the divorce rate, over 50%. And in my case, the death of a spouse, and it just creates... Some interesting situations. There are a lot of broken families, you know, a lot of blended families, and sometimes it's hard to define who is, who is, and who isn't part of the family. Um, yeah, something we face in our culture. But a bigger question, really, the biggest question is who is and who isn't part of God's family. Who are God's children? Who are the children of God? The sons and daughters of God? That's the biggest question we'll ever have to answer for ourselves. It's very important. So let's take a look at what our Lord has to say about this subject in this passage from Matthew's Gospel. I have three points this morning. The claim to God's family... His mother and his brother are like, hey, we're, we're Jesus' kin. The question of God's family, Jesus asks that rhetorical question, who are my brothers and my sisters and my mother, or who's my mother and my brothers? And then the definition of God's family, Jesus defines who's in his family. So the first point is the claim to God's family. Verses 46 and 47 say this, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. I love when the Bible does that, just repeats what it just said, right? Two two sentences in a row. But Jesus is speaking uh, to a crowd. Uh, He's in the midst of teaching. He's most likely in a house. 
Um, in the, the first verse of chapter 13, which is the next chapter, it's the next verse after verse 50 of chapter 12, we're told that Jesus walks out of the house. So we have no reason to believe that the setting changed in the, you know, those two verses. So Jesus is, is teaching in a house. The house is crowded as Jesus is teaching. Jesus' mother and brothers are outside. Mary and Jesus' four brothers are outside. Jesus had brothers and sisters. This is Mark, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. They say, is not this the carpenter? Is, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, or Jude, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So Mary and Jesus' brothers are outside. They want to they talk to him, but they, they can't get to him. And we're not sure why they want him to to vacate the house in the middle of his message. I mean, that's kind of, it's kind of strange. Um, but some speculate that they were very concerned about him. Some had said that he was out of his mind. The religious leaders were saying he had a demon. And most Bible scholars believe that, that they, that the family, that they were, they were there to pull him out of the house. Like, yeah, you know, he's, uh, he's lost it. Mary and Jesus' brothers send word, maybe through someone at the door. Man, they can't get in there. The doorman, hey, can you get a message to Jesus? Doorman, let him know we're family. Well, it's like a nightclub. They only let so many people in, you know, with that little rope. Who are you? Do you know someone in the club? Or you can't get in? There's like a doorman there or something. They can't get in. They get word to him. Can you get word to Jesus? Hey, tell Jesus to, to come out. The messenger or the doorman says to Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Hey, hit the pause button. Mom's here. Hey, hit the pause button. Your, your kin are here. Your blood relatives are here. It's not just some leper or some Pharisee or some rich young ruler or some blind man. No, it's mom. It's mom and your brothers. Your mom and brother, your family is here and they want to speak to you. They, they are telling me they claim to be your family. Now, of course, at this time, James and Judas or Jude were not yet believers. We know that later they would write biblical books. But at this point, they're, they're not yet believers. Jesus is in the, the middle of preaching. And this doesn't throw him. He doesn't, he doesn't skip a beat. He uses the interruption for an opportunity to make a very powerful point. He uses it as a teaching opportunity to define, to define who his family is and who, and who is the body of Christ. He asks the question, who is my family? And then that's the second point, the question of God's family. Matthew 12, 48, but Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Oh man, 
Hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. Hey, your family's outside. And our Lord's response is, who's my mother? And who are my brothers? You're you're defining my family in biological terms. As my biological relatives, I'm going to redefine my family for you, or I'm going to define my family for you. I'm going to identify my mother and my brothers and my sisters for you. And it's not who you think. I'm going to identify my family for you. I'm going to define the family of God. I'm going to let you know who my people are. And so Jesus asks this rhetorical question, and of course he's going to answer his own question. But the question is this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? That's that's a pretty big question, right? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who belongs to my spiritual family? Who belongs to the household of God? Who belongs to the household of faith? Who belongs to the body of Christ? I'm not going outside because my mother and my brothers and my sisters are right here. My disciples are my family. My followers are my family. And that's the third point, the definition of God's family. The definition of God's family. Verses 49 and 50, Matthew 12 Verses 49 and 50, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is it's pretty radical. My mother and my brothers and my sisters, I love, usually we're, we're, we're always, uh, Jesus is always speaking in terms of masculine pronouns, and here he, he brings in sisters, I love it. My mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do the will of my father. My family is defined by those who believe. You know, Paul would say that, right? The children of Abraham are those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Believers, followers of Christ. He's not saying he doesn't love his mom, by the way. He's not saying he doesn't love his biological brothers. Um. This text does teach that we share a closer bond with our spiritual family than our biological family. Okay, that is that the Bible teaches that for sure, especially of well, of course, if our biological faith, they're not believers. We share a closer bond through the spirit than we do through DNA. So this text does teach that, and uh, and we'll all see that play out in our lives, really. And this is commonly understood when we look at this passage and when people teach on this passage, and it's brought to the forefront when, when, um, when pastors and Bible teachers teach on this passage. But don't lose focus of what our Lord says here. You will identify the children of God by their works. You will identify the children of God by their works. Whoever, whosoever does the will of my Father, whoever, people from every tribe, nation, language, tongue, black, white, brown, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, slave, free, young, old, whoever does the will of my Father is in my family. It's like John 3.16, right? Whoever believes has eternal life. Whosoever. 
Does the will of my father is my family, my brother and my sister and my mother. But here, in, instead of whoever has faith, like John 16, he says, whoever does works. Whoever does the will of my father. Listen, you cannot separate faith and works. You, you cannot. Um, as, we, as we walk through this a little more, I am not saying that you are saved by works. You are not. Unless you want to say you're saved by the works of Christ, yes, we're saved by the works of another. But works are the evidence of our salvation, and they better be present. Works must accompany faith. Works are a necessary part of being a follower of Christ. They flow from justification. We're justified, we're made righteous, counted righteous in His sight. All our sins are forgiven through faith alone. But as Dr. Sproul would say, it's not a faith that is alone. Right? Works flow from salvation. I'm saved, therefore I obey. I'm unconditionally loved, therefore I obey. He first loved me, I love him back. Not I obey, therefore I'm saved, that's legalism. That is not what I'm saying. Good works don't merit salvation, they are the evidence of it. Okay. Good works don't merit salvation, they are the evidence of it. So many people in the church today think sin is just fine. They don't, they don't want to tell anybody that they have to do anything or that you better show some evidence in your life that you're a Christian or anything like that. It's kind of anything goes, oh, you said that you love Jesus. You said that you follow Jesus. Well, that's all it takes, brother. You're safe. Go live however you want to live. That is a lie from the pit of hell, and it will kill you. That, that, that's, that's the lie of Eden. You will not surely die. That's what Satan said to Eve. You, you, you will not surely die. No, God, God, doesn't, God doesn't want you to be autonomous. If you're a Christian, you are not autonomous. You're bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. He is your Lord and Savior. No one wants to tell people that they have to obey God's commands. It breaks my heart. It's dangerous. That is not the gospel. But, you know, you know, folks want people to come to church and feel good, and you don't want to tell them they have to do anything. You don't want to tell them to do any works. You don't want to tell them that they have to obey God. Jesus says this in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He loved us, so we love him. He loved us and gave us our sins and died for us, so we love him, and we want to follow him and obey him. And if you don't, something's wrong. Again, we love him because he first loved us. Do you remember the, the woman at the dinner party that's at Jesus' feet? And she's crying. Her tears are all over his feet, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. You know, the Pharisee's thinking to himself, oh, if he knew what kind of woman this was, and her past, and I mean, he, he wouldn't let, she's a big sinner, and he, he wouldn't let her be touching him like that. You know, Jesus responds, she loves much because she was forgiven much. Her love is flowing from her forgiveness. That's, that's the model. That's the gospel. We cannot go on willfully sinning after we've come to Christ. 
Now, our confession says that we sin daily in word, thought, and deed. We do. That's different than walking in sin, walking in darkness, living in sin. There's a big difference. This is Romans 6, um, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Notice he says live in it. Not that we're not going to mess up. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. We lie and do not practice the truth. Walk in darkness, we don't practice the truth. Walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Be careful of willful sin and rebellion against God. That's what we're speaking of here. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Good works don't merit salvation. They are the evidence of it. I didn't include this verse, but in in, uh, Luke chapter 6, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Lord, Lord. That's a term of him. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There's a disconnect. Something's wrong. John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You know, you might think, oh, well, pastor, you just, it just seems like a legalistic Sunday or something. Listen, the church doesn't, the church, the capital C, doesn't need, well, I was going to say it doesn't need more grace. It needs true grace. But it doesn't need more of just uh, go do what, whatever you want to do. And this is a dangerous thing to tell people. And it's not biblical. You better want to follow Jesus. You better want to obey Jesus. You better want to do good works. You better want to be righteous and holy and separate and different. Because if you don't, again, something is amiss. One of, uh, one of the brothers who was standing outside would later write, faith without works is dead. This isn't... <laughs> Part of scripture that's typically brought up, the pastors like to bring up, but it's important. This is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. What use is it, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? So that's the question. What use is it? Can that faith save him? That's James's question. Okay. Can that kind of faith save a person? Then he goes on, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? You think those, those are dead words. You don't really love that person. Be warm and filled, you know, we'll, we'll see you around. That's not loving. That's, he's saying it's the same way when you say you have faith and you don't follow Jesus. Um. And he makes the connection. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Okay, that's very specific. He's saying, where's the evidence 
of your faith. There's got to be evidence. You will know them by their fruit, fruit of the Spirit. I mean, all of this stuff, right? But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. So he's saying some people say or some people may argue that some folks have faith and some folks have works. And then he goes on, show me your faith without the works. He's saying, he's saying you can't. And I will show you my faith by my works, by doing the will of the Father. And then he, it gets pretty spooky. You believe that God is one. You're monotheist. Oh, good, yeah. You believe God is one. We believe God is one. That's orthodoxy. Doctrine of God. Theology proper. Yeah, God is one. God is one God in three persons. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. <laughs> He's saying big whoop. Big whoop. Anybody can, anybody can say that they, they believe that. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? Are you willing to recognize, you fool, that faith without works is useless? Man, that's a, <laughs> that's a powerful part of Scripture, isn't it? So that kind of faith cannot save a man. Do not be fooled into thinking that how you live doesn't matter. Whoever does the will of my father is my mother and brother and sister. It's Father's Day. Uh, maybe some of you are like my long-lost brother. You don't know who your biological father is. But, uh, but today, on Father's Day, you can make sure you know who your Heavenly Father is. You can secure a place in His family, in the household of faith, forever. And incidentally, if you're a child of God, you're adopted. You know that, right? You're not a natural child. We're all, all, all of us who are Christians, we're adopted. It's beautiful. The adoption is beautiful. My uh, son and daughter-in-law are adopting, and uh, babies do any day now. Doing the will of the Father starts with putting your your faith in his son, and then following him with your life. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whoever believes in him, shall not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. Wow. You put your faith in his son because he died in your place, and he kept the law perfectly for you. And this is why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Not come to me so now I can make you work. No, I kept the law for you. The Pharisees are telling you that you have to be saved by keeping the law. You don't. I kept it for you. It's a free gift. You're righteous. You're justified. It's like a gavel going down. It's an act of God's free grace where he justifies you. And then he says, now go. What does Jesus always say? Go and sin no more. Don't live in sin anymore. But he kept the law perfectly for you. He did the will of the Father for you so that you could belong to the Father, so that you could be adopted. And we, we turn our attention to that now. We turn our attention to the work of the Son so that we can become the children of God. We are the sons. 
We are the daughters of God because of what Jesus did. This is uh, John 1. I think I read, uh, I think I read verse 11 last week. This is uh, John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Jews, by and large, didn't, especially Jewish leadership. They rejected him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you have received him, if you believe in his name, the name of Jesus, then you, you come to his table. This table is for the children of God, the sons and the daughters of God. This is the Lord's table. It's for God's family. Whoever has received Jesus as Savior and Lord, the sons and daughters of God. And as your heart is ready, come forward to your Lord's table. Uh, Partake at the table with your Lord, a little piece of bread and a cup, and then um, take your cup back to your seat after, after you finish. Um, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, uh, when, we, when we come to your table, we see that you did obey the law perfectly for us. Um, you never sinned your whole life. You're the perfect spotless lamb. And then you died in our place because we do sin. We thank you for this great salvation that you took our sin out of the way and that you gave us your perfect righteousness. And then you just say, hey, live for me, love me, have a heart that's been on serving me. Make me Lord of your life. And so, Lord, we, we do that. You are our Lord and you are our Savior. And as we come to your table, help us, help us to remember everything that you've that you've done for us, all the things that we can't do for ourselves and are helpless to do for ourselves. And also help us to uh, be strengthened as we know that you're spiritually present at this sacrament, that you're here with us. So strengthen our hearts as we come and meet with you at your table, we pray in your name. Amen.